You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 15th day of August, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, including the flagship website, CorbettReport.com, as well as its sister websites, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and ClimateGate.tv, as well as NewWorldNextWeek.blip.tv, where you can find high-quality downloadable versions of the New World Next Week video series with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. And I'd also like to encourage my listeners to check out those websites that help to support, broadcast, syndicate, collect, and distribute the work of The Corbett Report, including MediaMonarchy.com, TragedyAndHope.com, TV.GlobalResearch.ca, ZeroPointRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, and now AltBib.com, where you can find an independently hosted archive of this podcast should you ever have problems reaching The Corbett Report's servers. But now, as we have a lot to cover today, and as I have, I think, a particularly important edition of Sunday Update today that I hope people will get out and help to distribute, let's get straight to it. So now, without further ado, here's today's Sunday Update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to Sunday Update for this 15th day of August, 2010. And now for the real news. It was reported last week that 40 billionaires have signed a giving pledge to give 50% of their wealth to good causes in what is being called a remarkable act of noblesse oblige. Coverage of the pledge, which we are told was spearheaded by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and includes such billionaires as George Lucas, Baron Hilton, and Larry Ellison, assumed that the genesis of the idea came at a secretive meeting of billionaires hosted by Doc David Rockefeller at Rockefeller University last year, a meeting that received a substantial amount of press coverage that reported absolutely nothing of substance. Behind closed doors on this New York campus, a secret gathering of some of the world's most powerful people. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey. It was like, well, it was like the Super Friends. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes. Together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion to have been in the room and and see this meeting of the minds really would have been a fascinating thing. That much money, that much power around one table, 
it begs the question, what were they doing? What were they scheming? Total world domination? This group, together for six hours, was talking about charity, education, emergency relief, global health. All my friends are philanthropic. Well, they probably wouldn't be my friends. What such reporting fails to take into account are any of the actual facts about these people, their histories, or what their family fortunes have specifically gone towards funding in the past. Two of the names specifically mentioned in the reports about the billionaire pledge are John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, the world's first billionaire and the owner of the world's first billion-dollar company, respectively. John D. Rockefeller and his son founded the Rockefeller Foundation in 1913. They funded the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in the early 1900s, which housed the Eugenics Record Office in America and was the main American institution funding research into eugenics, the master race ideology that certain humans are inherently superior due to their genetics. They established the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, where, Ro where Rockefeller money went to support researchers like Alexis Carroll, who advocated the use of poison gas to rid the planet of useless eaters, Hideo Noguchi, who discovered the agent of syphilis by injecting orphans with syphilis without their consent, and Cornelius Rhodes, a researcher for the Rockefeller Institute in Puerto Rico, who wrote a letter in 1932 asserting that, quote, the Puerto Ricans are beyond doubt the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate and thievish race of men ever inhabiting this sphere. What the island needs is not public health work, but a tidal wave of something to totally exterminate the population. It might then be livable. I have done my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight and transplanting cancer into several more." End quote. The Rockefellers also funded the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Eugenics, which was instrumental in developing the eugenicist policies of the Nazi regime in Germany. The Rockefellers even funded the very program that Joseph Mengele worked in before he went to Auschwitz. Several prominent families are responsible for funding and promoting eugenics in America namely the Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harriman, and Osborne families. Two families, the Rockefellers and the Osbornes, are particularly significant. John D. Rockefeller Sr. contributed a large amount of money to build the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in the early 1900s, which housed the Eugenics Records Office from 1910 to 1944. Rockefeller influence also spread overseas to Germany, where the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Psychiatry and the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Eugenics, Anthropology, and Human Heredity resided. Much of the money used to run these facilities came directly from Rockefeller. These institutes became centers for Nazi eugenics programs during the reign of Adolf Hitler. In 1932, the 3rd International Eugenics Conference was held in New York City. The conference was hosted by Henry Fairfield Osborne. It was during this conference that an honored guest from Germany attended. Ernst Rudin was elected by the conference attendees as president of the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations. Rudin went on to craft the policies that governed Adolf Hitler's genocide programs at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. In the wake of World War II, when the extent of the Nazi atrocities was finally revealed, the Rockefellers helped to continue the eugenics agenda by converting the American Eugenics Society into the Rockefeller-founded Population Council. The Carnegie family has also been instrumental in using their billions to change society for the worse under the protective banner of philanthropy. 
In the 1950s, a congressional investigation known as the Reese Committee began inquiring into the wrongdoings of tax-exempt foundations. The shocking revelations of that committee have been ignored by the media for 56 years, but Chief Investigator Norman Dodd testified about the documentation that that committee uncovered, showing how tax-exempt foundations use their power and influence to steer society in a direction favorable to the wealthy elite. In one case, the committee received unprecedented access to the minutes of the meetings of the board of the Carnegie Endowment, going back to that body's inception in 1908. And in that year, the trustees, meeting for the first time, raise a specific question, which they discuss throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people? And they conclude that no, no, no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then in 1909 they raised the second question and discuss it, namely, how do we involve the United States in a war? Well, I doubt at that time if there was any subject more removed from the thinking of most of the people of this country than its involvement in a war. There were intermittent shows in the Balkans, but I doubt very much if many people even knew where the Balkans were. Then finally, they answer that question as follows. We must control the State Department. And, they, uh, and then that, that very naturally raises the question of how do we do that? And um, they answer it by saying, we must take over and control the diplomatic machinery of this country. And finally, they resolve to aim at that as an objective. The quest of the billionaire elites to control society and to kill off those who are not part of their bloodlines continues to the present day, with the Rockefeller Foundation having worked with the UN Development Program, the World Bank, and the WHO to develop an abortofacient vaccine that laced tetanus toxoids with human gonadotrophin hormone, causing pregnant women who took the vaccine to spontaneously abort. The vaccines were given to women in Thailand, the Philippines, Nicaragua, Mexico, and Africa, with women only finding out what had been done to them when independent organizations had paid out of their own pockets to test the vaccines and discovered the HCG hormones. Now, a newer generation of billionaires are practicing using their wealth toward continuing the work of the older billionaire eugenicists. This equation has four factors, a little bit of multiplication. So you've got a thing on the left, CO2, that you want to get to zero. And that's going to be based on the number of people, the services each person's using on average, the energy on average for each service, and the CO2 being put out per unit of energy. So let's look at each one of these and see how we can get this down to zero. Uh, probably one of these numbers is going to have to get pretty near to zero. Uh, that's back from high school algebra, but let's, let's take a look. Uh, first, we've got population. Uh, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. 
Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. Look for absolutely none of this context to be reported in the breathless news accounts extolling the noblesse oblige of the billionaires who are generously donating their wealth toward directing our society in the direction they wish. Just as it was only noted in passing that the original Rockefeller-hosted Super Friends dinner that gave rise to the billionaire pledge concluded that the most pressing issue facing the world is reducing the population. Instead, one will have to turn to the citizen media to see people like Jay Rockefeller, who infamously proclaimed that the internet should never have existed, be confronted about his family's eugenicist ties. I think it's time for me to really start moving quickly. Yeah, yeah. If you could just address some you. of these Thank things. You. If we're Thank wrong, you. sir, please just tell no, us. No, no, go, yeah. go find somebody else to talk to. Well, your family Thank did you. start the modern eugenics movement that Hitler is looking up to. And you don't want to talk about the Bilderberg group? Well, what about the Bilderberg Certainly do. You don't want to talk about them? They want to implement eugenics as well. The truth is coming out, and there's a lot of us that are aware of it. On a related note, a series of disturbing reports over the last few weeks have only confirmed that the population of the world is under sustained attack from the chemicals that have been knowingly inserted into everyday products and staple foods. In one of the latest reports, the Chinese government is investigating reports that tainted milk products have led to the premature onset of puberty in girls as young as 13 months. This is fresh on the heels of reports that show that girls are beginning to show signs of puberty as young as seven years of age in the United States. And media reports on the problem of growing male infertility, evident in a 50% reduction in sperm counts over the past 50 years. These findings have been linked to the presence of estrogen-mimicking and androgen-blocking chemical compounds known as endocrine disruptors that are increasingly inserted into the plastics we buy, the soaps and detergents that we use, the clothes that we wear, the foods that we eat, and even the ink on the receipts that we get from cash registers. One of the best known and least controversial of these chemicals is BPA, or bisphenol A, a, chem a chemical that is now being banned from baby products in numerous countries around the world. Earlier this week, however, Dr. Elizabeth Whelan of the American Council on Science and Health made the bizarre assertion that BPA is a harmless trace chemical. The Food and Drug Administration gave a statement, a very clear statement in January about the chemical BPA, which is used in, in plastics, it's used in can liners to prevent foodborne illness. Everyone's worried about it. They shouldn't be. Well, the, the FDA has spoken and said it's safe. Dr. Will, I mean, the reality is, though, as you know, there, there are 80,000 chemicals out there that we're talking about specifically here. Under, of which 200 have been tested. So the point, I, I think the point that a lot of people get concerned about, not so much that we think that they're dangerous, but we don't know that they're safe. You, you don't know it. And we've well, made these mistakes the, before. I mean, we used to think lead well, the, was okay. And now we know that not only is it not okay, it ca can cause significant problems. The problem is how you prove something safe. It cannot be done. It's like proving a negative. And you take something, like again, a chemical like BPA that's been around for 50 years, been tested all over the world, and everyone says it's safe, yet it still does not have a safe designation in the minds of many people who are concerned about chemicals. 
Well, it also doesn't have a safe designation entirely yet from the U.S. government. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration is still examining bisphenol A. It's a common ingredient in can liners and other sources of environmental exposure. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has listed uh, BPA as one of its chemicals of concern, so it's just not the case. No word yet on what the ramifications of Dr. Whalen promoting such a dangerous and completely unscientific assertion on CNN might be. On a positive note, however, citizen groups continue to form in cities around the globe to fight back against this chemical onslaught, with groups from Wichita, Kansas to Edmonton, Alberta, taking up the cause of getting neurotoxic chemicals like fluoride removed from the public drinking water. Now, stay tuned for episode 142 of The Corbett Report, The Underpopulation Crisis, where we deconstruct the myth of overpopulation and uncover the demographic winter endgame of the eugenics-obsessed elite. Welcome, my friends, to episode 142 of The Corbett Report, The Underpopulation Problem. No doubt my listeners will be familiar with the idea of an overpopulation problem, or the idea that the world is just becoming so crowded and that there are so many people that we must soon run out of resources and all die horrible deaths, simply because there are just too many children being born. And my listeners might be familiar with that, if only because I overtly covered that myth in episode 17 of this podcast, The Myth of Overpopulation. But certainly it would be hard to miss the recurring meme that has been handed down from generation to generation now for centuries, that we are all about to run out of resources and die a terrible lingering death because there are too many people who are greedily taking up too much space on the planet. Now, I say this has been handed down for generations uh, throughout the centuries because we can at least trace this idea back to Thomas Malthus, who was writing in the late 18th century, predicting widespread famines throughout the world because, of course, there were just too many people being born and population increases geometrically while food supply increases arithmetically. Now, what Malthus and his acolytes, known as the Malthusians, failed to take into account is that humans are actually resourceful creatures and can figure out new and better ways of farming and utilizing the land and how to utilize other types of land and other types of crops than what was being commonly done in the late 18th century. So perhaps the impending crisis that Malthus envisioned taking place in the 19th century didn't happen because Malthus was wrong which of course would be a logical conclusion to come to, except, unfortunately, it was not taken that way by many astute and very learned scientists like Paul Ehrlich, who back in the 60s and 70s was warning about the population bomb and how the world would once again face ravages and shortages of food and resources in the 70s and 80s, killing millions of people around the globe because there were just too many people on the planet. And again, when those predictions didn't come true, well, that didn't stop many scientists from continuing to forecast their chicken little sky is falling forecasts every few years about the power of the overpopulation bomb to wipe out society as we've known it. And I'm sure my listeners will be familiar either through this podcast or through the corporate controlled media, which has so helpfully given so much free advertising to this meme, 
that the overpopulation problem is not merely one of depleting resources, but one of overproduction of CO2, that deadly, nauseous, life-giving gas that actually helps plants to grow and is part of the carbon cycle, which is necessary to all life on this planet. But regardless, the greenhouse gas is going to give rise to such temperature changes that the world is going to end because there are too many people producing carbon dioxide and that for the world to live people must die well unfortunately there is all too much of that meme readily available so i will refrain from playing any particular clips uh, espousing that view on this podcast because I don't think I need to promote that in order for people to understand it but suffice it to say if you want to see some of the other side and I always do encourage people to take a look at all sides of issues so I do encourage you to go to for example YouTube and type in overpopulation and watch some of the results and I'm sure it will not take long before you're watching videos about how humanity is a cancer on this planet and that the overpopulation bomb is going to explode and we're all going to die because of man-made CO2 or something of that ilk. But as I say, I'm sure all of my listeners are familiar by now with the population, the overpopulation crisis. But I'm sure very few, or at least fewer, are familiar with the idea of an underpopulation crisis. The idea that there were in fact too few people on the planet and too few people being born to actually replace our current level of uh, people on this planet. And that we may be passing a tipping point where it may actually be impossible to fully recover from the underpopulation crisis. So to start getting a handle on what this problem is and how it can possibly be that we might be having an underpopulation crisis, even as the UN, and what a bastion of objective scientific evidence the UN has turned out to be, hmm? but even the UN says that we're going to be hitting an unbelievable 9 plus billion people by the year 2050, after which the population will start to decline. Well, how can the population go down if we are experiencing this unbelievable exponential surge in population. These two things seem contradictory, but they are not when you look at the underlying demographics of the problem. So right now let's turn to a clip from a documentary entitled Demographic Winter explaining how these two contrary type tendencies can both prevail at the same time. We have entered into a new phase of modern history. one that we desperately need to understand. You know, there's been a great decline in maybe 70 countries now that are below replacement fertility. Replacement fertility is the number of childbirths per woman that is required to replace the existing population. We're going into a new era. Why is it is this aging and why is this uh, demographic winter occurring? It's happening in rich countries, it's happening in poor countries, it's happening in Catholic countries, Islamic countries, and that is everywhere um, people are having fewer and fewer children. When fewer children are born, there are proportionately more elderly. This is called an aging population. The world for the last 200 years has been population increases pretty much in all countries. So that's the challenge, to try to first understand why it's happening and then some consequences. 
the reason the world has experienced a population explosion over the past century is not because human beings suddenly started breeding like rabbits, it's because they finally stopped dying like flies. What's really driven up human numbers has been a health explosion. The population of children in the world has already declined. Um, and yet, world population will probably grow by another 1.7, 1.8 billion. It's a paradoxical reality until you do the simple arithmetic to see what's happening to the population of different age groups. Certain population reduction in at least some countries, and in many countries without immigration, uh, enters us into unknown terrain where there are potentially very significant negative consequences. Subreplacement fertility a generation and more ago means that the working age population, age 15 to 64, is going to be slowing and then peaking and then declining more or less indefinitely as far as the demographer's eye can see. In previous eras in which we had manpower shortages, we resorted to things like slavery and indentured servitude. And gradually, as the world population took off, uh, beginning in the 18th century, we, we freed more and more categories of people from slavery, from debt peonage. Most people think, because they've seen it all their life, real estate only goes up, they're not making more of it, population's growing, and real estate doesn't always go up. It was down a lot of the early 1900s, and particularly in the 1930s in that depression. Northern Italy and parts of Spain, with fertility rates below one, homes in abandoned villages all around Europe. First, there's a few births. Fertility rate is very low. It's 1.38 in Europe, uh, whereas the rate needed for survival is 2.1. While Western Europe is experiencing low fertility, Parts of Eastern Europe are already experiencing population decline. From 1989, uh, for example, to 2002, uh, the population has decreased by 13%. Once again, that information comes from Demographic Winter, a documentary that's available at demographicwinter.com. And by all means, I do encourage people to go to DemographicWinter.com and purchase a copy of the DVD to support the filmmakers and to get a copy of the documentary, because it does contain some very important factual information about the demographic winter which we're now facing. In other words, an aging, graying population that will start dying out and for which there is no real replacement coming along as fertility rates start to fall drastically across the planet. Although I would make some reservations about that documentary, namely in that their inquiry into the causes of the demographic winter that we're now facing, I think leaves something to be desired. And I think it becomes pretty apparent towards the latter half of that documentary that there is a certain type of family values agenda, I suppose, that is being promoted. And it has religious connotations, shall we say, that I think 
many listeners, well, some listeners may find uh, unpalatable, others may strongly support, but I think ultimately it misses the key and core issues about what is really going on here, and we'll come to that in a minute, but at least for those who are interested in some more of the science behind this, I would once again encourage you to watch Demographic Winter for for the visual learners like myself out there who need to see uh, information represented. There are some very compelling graphics that show very clearly how even though the overall world population is increasing, that's really only a function of the increasing number of elderly in our societies. And when you average that out with the number of children, the decreasing number of children who are being born, it does give an upward trend towards global population, but doesn't take into account that many of the elderly people will be dying off in a few decades and that there are not enough children coming along to take their place. In other words, we may be heading into an irreversible decline in human population. And it is no conspiracy theory and it is no religious-based agenda of any sort to say that the fertility rates are falling. We can even go to the UN itself, which admitted in its World Fertility Report in 2007, quote, Between the 1970s and the early years of the 21st century, fertility fell worldwide at unprecedented rates and to unprecedented levels. Total fertility fell in all but one of the 132 countries or areas for which data are available for both periods. In the most recent period covered, 59 countries or areas had a total fertility below 2.1 children per woman, the level required to ensure the replacement of generations in low mortality populations. End quote. And I will include a link to that document so you can go and read about some of the other causes for this demographic winter, which even the UN is admitting in its reports, although that is not hyped nearly as much as their uh, projections of 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. But uh, you can read about the rising marriage age and the increasing use of contraception and the increasing promotion of contraception by governments around the world as some of the factors related to why fertility rates are decreasing. But I think this is where, again, we can concentrate on some of the social factors surrounding the declining fertility rates, and we can point, as demographic winter does, to the changes in family structure and family values that led to the rise of childless families. And yes, there is some merit to that. Obviously, women do tend to be part of the workforce more than they were several decades ago. And as a result, there does tend to be more of a concern for women to stay employed and to be part of the work world, which of course limits their ability and their time in investing in having children. So there are, of course, very real social reasons for what we're seeing. But I think ultimately underlying these social reasons are some more fundamental reasons that have very much to do with how we are getting to the place that we are at. And one of those underlying reasons is undoubtedly economic. It seems almost so obvious that it doesn't need to be stated, but I don't see many people stating it, so I'll state it myself, that economic reasons are one of the key reasons, I think, that a lot of uh, couples these days choose to remain childless. 
I have heard the refrain many times that there are people who would have children if they felt that they could provide a stable home for them, but that they simply can't do that. And it's also, I think, quite self-evident that even in the rich, developed world, it is almost impossible now, almost unthinkable to think of a home that can survive on one person's salary. It's almost universal now, or is certainly the norm, to have both a mother and father, or should we say the man and woman of the household, both working for a living, which of course obviously uh, takes away from the time that they're able to invest in having and nurturing children, which would, as an inevitable result, lead to having fewer children. So although it is a truism to state that once populations industrialize, they start, the birth rate starts to fall, it's also an underlying economic reality that that birth rate is falling at least as much because people can't afford to have children as for any other particular reason. And this is why we are one of the reasons why we are certainly not facing an overpopulation problem. And I think this point is extremely well made in a very, very well done video from the Population Research Institute, which is entitled Food, There's Lots of It. And it makes the point, I think, very effectively that by getting rid of people from the planet, you are not going to solve the fundamental underlying problem of the distribution of wealth among people of this planet. According to believers in overpopulation, there are so many of us on the planet that food production cannot possibly keep up. However, According to both the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization and the World Food Program, there is currently enough food on the planet for everyone to be well-fed. Not only that, but we're growing this food on less land than we did in the past. This is why in the United States, for example, the government can afford to pay farmers not to grow food, but instead return their farmland to the wild. Modern technology also allows us to grow food on land where it would have been impossible to do so, even a few years ago. Agricultural experts even believe that Africa, if cultivated using modern farming methods, could eventually feed the whole world, all by itself. Then why are people in many parts of the world starving? The World Food Program lists key causes of hunger, and overpopulation is not on that list. War, one of the leading causes of world hunger, destroys crops and disrupts relief efforts. Widespread poverty prevents many from buying the food that they need. And a lack of infrastructure means that there isn't a reliable way to transport food to areas that need it. This is why reducing the number of hungry people will not make the remaining people less hungry. Those who have access to the food will continue to have access to it, and those who don't will still be hungry. Reducing population will not magically cause food to be spread around equally. And blaming overpopulation for everything does nothing but distract us from the real problems that we actually have. Think about it. Those who have access to the food will continue to have access to it, and those who don't will continue to be hungry. Well, is there any better or more apt way of describing the problem than that? It's not a problem of how many people are on the planet. We self-evidently could produce enough food to feed the world many times over, but we cannot distribute that food evenly under the current system. And what is the current system? 
Well, of course, there will be those who will argue that this is some sort of capitalist, socialist argument and that we must distribute resources equally among the people based on socialist principles. But I'm sure that my listeners will be well situated to parse that rhetoric as just more of the phony left-right type nonsense that is created by the people controlling the system to keep people from looking at real solutions to the problem. And as a hint as to what some of the real problems and some of the real solutions might be, you might take a look at such things as the recent 28 trillion plus dollar bailout of the banks over the past two years in America. Yes, that's right. Over 28 trillion dollars has been sunk into the banks and given to the banksters who created the economic mess that we're still dealing with and doubtless will be dealing with for decades. And you and I not only will not see any of that, but the unfortunate people who happen to be American taxpayers are going to be hooked on the hook for the majority of that, at least until the US dollar is turned into toilet paper and everything is converted into a new regional or global economic system anyway, at which point, well, that won't particularly matter because we'll all be indentured in indentured servitude to the banksters, as exactly as they intended. But as another example of that, we can point to something that we looked at recently on an episode of The New World Next Week, which we talked about involving the food bubble that was created first by Goldman Sachs, and then as the other banksters saw how profitable it was, they jumped on board by basically creating a commodity out of wheat prices that they could then base derivatives on and start betting up the market, so that we saw phenomenal increases in the price of wheat that were not caused by actual increase in demand for wheat, but increase in demand for the pieces of paper representing the upward and downward movements of wheats, i.e. the derivatives which the banksters created, which represented nothing of real value in the world, and yet were actually driving up the rates of wheat to the point where there were there was starvation and there were people dying as a result of this game that was being played with the commodities market, all brought to you by those wonderful, loving banksters at Goldman Sachs et al. Now, as I said before, there were in fact two, I think, underlying causes for the declining population, and one of them is the economic system which we've been enslaved into from our births and for many, many centuries. But the other underlying and fundamental pillar of this underpopulation crisis is, of course, the eugenics agenda, which we have looked at time and time and time again in this podcast, and for good reason, because it is something with which the billionaires and, well, the trillionaires behind the scenes who really do control what's going on in our society to an extremely disturbing extent seem to worship almost as a religion of their own. Again, this is a subject that I've covered many, many times before, so I'm sure many of my long-term listeners will be familiar with some of the basics right now, but I guess a very succinct way of getting some of the basics would be from today's Sunday update, where I talk about the billionaires and their support of the elitist eugenics agenda throughout the 20th century, and now continuing into the 21st century with crypto-eugenicists like Bill Gates. But... In order to come to grips with exactly how this ties in, well, it's actually an extremely simple process of connecting the eugenics agenda, which was being funded in the early part of the 20th century, out in the open and completely documentable by the Rockefellers and Carnegies and Fords and other 
billionaire philanthropic organizations and connecting that to the overpopulation crisis, which has been being hyped for a good well, the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century now, helped along by, surprise, surprise, the Rockefeller-founded Population Council. Never heard of the Population Council? Well, it was founded in 1952 by, surprise, surprise, John D. Rockefeller III. And it just so happens that John D. III picked one Frederick Osborne to be the first president of the council. And who was Frederick Osborne? Well, he was one of the founders of the American Eugenics Society in 1926. He joined the Galton Institute in 1928, served as its secretary in 1931, played a central role in the 1936 founding of the Office of Population Research at Princeton University, and was one of the founding trustees of the Pioneer Fund in 1937, a charitable foundation charged with promoting, wait for it, eugenics. Yes, that's right. An avowed and admitted eugenicist takes over the Population Council set up by Rockefeller in 1952, and the Population Council is run out of the very offices of the American Eugenics Society at the very time that the American Eugenics Society was withering away as the Nazi atrocities started to be exposed and the name of eugenics was sullied once and for all. And the entire process of crypto-eugenics, as Julian Huxley has uh, so memorably put it, began to take over, and suddenly eugenics was no longer talked about. It was the population problem. Again, it's quite easy to see how the eugenics idea of killing off inferior people because they did not have the right bloodline and were not of superior genetic stock led to an overpopulation problem by which there could be a pseudoscientific gloss over the need to kill people. And in fact, that very eugenicist urge goes back to the very founding of the overpopulation myth itself, with Thomas Malthus, of course, famously having proposed killing off the poor of society because, of course, they were eating up the food that the rich needed to continue the human species. And remembered Thomas Malthus was the person who really popularized the idea of an overpopulation crisis. So again, for 200 plus years now, the uh, economic elite have been arguing that people need to die so that their children have a little bit more room to breathe on this planet. And perhaps, well, it, my more discerning or credulous listeners might want to doubt the so-called science that is produced by these so-called scientific bodies that are funded by the very people who want you to believe that you have to die in order for their progeny to survive. But again, many people have been programmed into going along with it and believing that it is good for people to die, that the earth might live. And as I've gone through again time and again on this podcast, that's very much related to the modern environmental movement, which has been usurped and taken over and completely controlled by the corporations that want you to believe that you giving things up will be good for the environment. Again, it goes back to ancient and primordial urges that people need to sacrifice for the goddess Mother Earth to live. So the question inevitably arises, how to counter this type of unbelievable, disgusting, anti-human propaganda that would seek to paint the human species as a cancer on this earth, rather than one of the most miraculous and amazing things that have, has ever existed in the known universe. Well, for an example of exactly how these people should be confronted, 
Let's take a listen to an episode of The Alex Jones Show from the 10th of May 2007, in which Alex was talking to Valerie Stevens of the Optimum Population Trust, a group that I'm sure many of my listeners might be familiar with by now, but one that inevitably and in every opportunity promotes the idea of pushing limits to population growth in the name of the environment or whatever is popular, uh, a popular excuse to use for such an agenda at the moment. So let's listen to a very interesting and very entertaining exchange between Valerie Stevens and Alex Jones. Uh, Valerie, you say nowhere on your website should you say that it's an eco-crime, uh, but the headline in the Sunday Times of London is having large families is an eco-crime. Uh, how do you uh, think that they came up with that uh, headline? I've no idea, and it's rather embarrassed us because uh, we wouldn't say words like a crime at all. We're saying we want people to think about this issue. We do wonder about uh, the advisability of, you know, some governments in uh, in Europe and also in Australia are so concerned about low birth rates that they actually offer big bonuses and handouts if you have a third But see, child. that won't work. You guys are actually helping us, uh, and I appreciate you. Uh, put your billboards up, start taxing having kids. Uh, the People like to rebel, and so when as soon as you make it stylish to have more children you're actually going to save the beloved west so i just i just want to thank you (laughs) we're going to win we can't be stopped you seem to know that well um when you say uh the west uh, are you including europe with uh usa uh yes yeah i mean we have quite different uh, and japan too i don't want the japanese to become extinct we don't want anybody to become extinct i'll tell you what we're uh, our bottom line is that we think that the number of births each year should be roughly equal to the number of deaths so that we're not having 80 million more people on the planet every year, all of them using energy, all of them emitting or being responsible for the emissions of carbon dioxide. But you cannot deny that, that, that China has now surpassed the United States in, 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 in carbon footprint emissions, and they're, they're not putting in, in any of these controls. And, yeah, and yeah. Oh, 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 well, I was going to stop you. Except for the beloved one-child policy, which, which is the law, and there are fines associated, do you think that's a sensible thing they're doing in China? I do, actually. I think the world would be in a really terrible mess now if the Chinese had not instituted that one-child policy. Okay, so there you go. There you go right there, mm. is, that, is that you say you don't want it to be the law and don't want fines, but you really do in the end of the day. Not in the Western democracies, no. That has to be the choice of the people. We have free votes, and we can choose that kind but of But you thing. support China doing it at a barrel of a gun. I think, I think China has... The, the number of people in China who would have starved by now, died of starvation, is even with their one-child policy for the past 15 years, they are totally running out of water. Parts of their country is becoming an absolute... No, that's not true. Can't. I've seen all the numbers. That, no. So, you know, if they'd not... Not had the one-child policy before now. Millions and millions of them would have starved. That well, you know, Mao admits he killed 60 mil in the in the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. That's an official government. Pub- they're very proud of it. In official government publications, the mass culling. They're the apple of the UN's eye. They get all the big awards, and it's it's the government planning. Uh, that uh, has caused the problems. They can easily increase uh, their yield and feed their population. If I they f- think I think you have not looked at the way.
by their water tables they're receiving because they've been overpumped, and I, I know that parts of the USA are they have the they have the uh, they have the ocean. They have they, they could build desalinization. Humans uh, can do right. whatever's needed. And, and desalination plant uses fossil fuel energy. To oh, drive which things. again, Al Gore has been proven to be a fraud. All scientists do not agree, as that UN report fraudulently said. And hundreds of those scientists are on record saying their names were added without their consent. We have the ice core samples that it's an 800-year gap of carbon dioxide increases after warming begins. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant; it is a life accelerant. Plants grow even faster and more healthy in our ancient past we had a higher carbon dioxide level in photosynthesis boosting total oxygen levels for all of the different types of animal life that is a scientific hoax and a fraud no i think you will see that the bulk of scientists around the world are agreed that global climate change is happening and it is probably due Probably. You guys were saying all scientists just six months ago till they all started going public about the lies. Now you got to say bulk of scientists. It's a very small number of scientists who are saying that Al Gore's wrong or the, the, all these other uh, scientists around the world are wrong. It is a very small number who are countering that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. What's your study or a major index on that? Um, I mean, I, well, what's your proof? In, Let me in, see your proof. In science, in New Scientist, these magazines that reflect the scientific community. That are owned by the oil companies that want to have a global carbon tax. We have the Bilderberg Group and SPP documents. This is a giant hoax. Peak oil's a hoax. And we have the documents, and we're going to get it out to the people. Tell you what, I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to be polite. I've got a little angry. I'm not being gentlemanly. I apologize to you. One more little segment with us, please. I'd like to hear, then, what we should do if you're right. We'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are graced and honored to have uh, Valerie Stevens of the Optimum Population Trust joining us. OptimumPopulation.org. Uh, okay, without me then sitting here running over you, you say you support what China's doing, but that we're democracies, so we can't do that here, but you don't support a tax or it being the law to reduce children or the number of births. And I'm going to have more children just because of this, by the way, uh, because we will survive, we will continue, and we are not a cancer on the earth, as Prince Philip has called us. But, I mean, explain to us then uh, that, that paradox between what China's doing is good, but that, but that we're not going to do that here, but you're just introducing us to it and how evil our carbon footprint is. I think perhaps we come from, to it from a slightly different point of view. Remember that in the United Kingdom, we're one of we're even more densely populated than China. We are struggling with a population of 60 million on this tiny island, um, and, and our numbers are still growing by about a quarter of a million every year. Illegal aliens. Your actual birth rate is uh, 1.5. You're dying. 1.78, actually. Um, oh, then I guess the BBC is lying. I, I, I think they're integrating uh, second-generation foreigners. Uh, if you actually look at, 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 at real uh, populations there, uh, the Germanic Mongol uh, 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 tribes, 
and, and by Mongol tribes, a, you know, an amalgamation uh, of the Germanic and Norse populations, Romanic invasions, uh, that it's uh, actually at about 1.3. But go ahead. Right. Um, we are so concerned about the way in which our cities are encroaching on Greenbelt in this country. Um, and we see that happening all over Europe, the spread of dense populations in industrialized countries. Um, we're desperately worried about the kind of future that our children and grandchildren are going to face. I can't imagine, Mr. Jones, that you think it's a welcome thing in the world today that is running out of resources to have 80 million more people on the planet every year. I really cannot understand how anybody can say well, that. Well, the, is, the problem is, is that I have literally decades of research on this subject, and I know that once third world nations industrialize, uh, that their population growth will go down to zero immediately. Uh, oh, that's... no, it can't go immediately because the people, even if all the couples in third world countries only had one child per couple. By immediately, tomorrow, I mean as soon as they industrialize. As soon no, as... but even if they did it tomorrow, the number of... The UN's own studies, let me just finish, the UN's own studies okay. say that population will grow to 9.5 billion and then start declining. That yes. is... So that's, that's two and a half billion more than we have now. That cannot be good for a planet that already overshoots its renewable resource base. That Here, here's the problem, ma'am. Ma'am, ma here's the problem. I have the oil company documents. They're behind the whole fake environmental movement. The environmental movement is nothing more than neo-feudalism and serfdom. Uh, actually, there's few countries in the world that have more green space and more held lands and palaces for your royalty uh, and, and, that, and that basically you're still in a feudal model with very few landowners with massive pressure to steal the land of the farmers uh, uh, that are still there and all the harassment they go under uh, and uh, that and, and that we haven't this is nothing but Malthusian social Darwinism are you familiar with Prince Philip who's a big supporter I know of your foundation and, and other groups saying he wants to come back as a virus to kill 80 percent of us I could, I'm absolutely flabbergasted, Mr. Jones, that you can even be bothered to talk to, him, to me since my background is obviously so obnoxious to you. Perhaps I should just put the phone down and say, maybe we'll talk another time. Well, what do you um, know about Prince Philip? Uh, goodbye, Mr. Jones. Oh, man, that really got to her right there. Goodbye, Mr. Jones. We'll be dealing with you soon enough. <laughs> Once again, that was Valerie Stevens of the Optimum Population Trust on the Alex Jones Show. And as I say, the Optimum Population Trust should be familiar to my listeners by now because they are one of the key groups that has been at least pushing this agenda in the UK. And a eugenics agenda, it most certainly is. Make no bones about it. It is eugenics by any other name. And probably the most sickening and disturbing example of the type of things that they're up to occurred in December of last year. And I have an article up on CorbettReport.com that I wrote on the 9th of December 2009. UK group proposes using carbon offsets to stop poor from breeding. 
Quote, the Optimum Population Trust, a UK-based think tank and registered charity, has launched a new initiative urging wealthy members of the developed world to participate in carbon offsets that fund programs for curbing the population of developing nations. The scheme is being promoted as a more cost-effective way to reduce CO2 emissions than investing in alternative energy sources, and offers a way for elitist racists to feel ethical in their quest to exterminate the third world masses. A BBC News article on the proposal dutifully reports the OPT's proposal and their justification for proposing it. They note that the program is designed to fund contraception programs in poor nations, a term that helpfully obscures the fact that such programs, including those run by FPA, one of the agencies listed as a supporting organization of this new program, have used bribes to get poor men and women to volunteer for sterilization. If any further evidence were needed that the green rhetoric of carbon offsets were merely another front for the rabidly racist ideology of eugenics, perhaps the clearest indication could be found on the Galton Institute homepage. Here, the group that once openly called itself a eugenics society brags that one of its main functions is to serve as a funding vehicle for Marie Stopes International, an organization whose founder was a rabid racist who advocated sterilization of non-whites and the poor. And the eugenicists' agenda rolls on. End quote. Yes, it is a eugenics agenda, make no mistake about it, and Valerie Stevens and her ilk are merrily perpetuating it. And what else can we do as a society and as a species but utterly reject, refute, repudiate, and generally go against whatever these racist eugenicists are proposing? And just as a side note, you may have heard in that clip from the Alex Jones show that Alex Jones said he was going to have another child just because he was so disgusted by the OPT and what they were proposing. And less than a year later, he had a new baby girl. And ultimately, perhaps this is not rocket science. If the inbred eugenics-obsessed elite want controls over the internet, I'm against controls over the internet. If the inbred eugenics-obsessed elite are for a world economy run behind the scenes by an international banking institution, then I'm against the world economy. If they want a dictatorial world government so that they can better implement their plans, I'm against that. And if they tell you not to have babies, I say, go make some babies. And on that note, that's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 143 of The Corbett Report, More Truth Music.